All right, all right. Can you guys hear me okay? So as we are getting ready for our service this morning, go ahead and grab out your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. And as you guys are getting there, I want to share a story with you about God's faithfulness. I know for sure that He has been faithful and good in my life, and I know that that is true of you guys as well. But I want to give you a little, a little insight into how we got to where we are today. About three, three and a half years ago, my family and I decided, Katie and I and our kids decided to come plug in here at Start Baptist Church. And man, it has been such a blessing, right? But about a year and a half ago, I had a really interesting conversation with Brother John Hatton. He came to me one night, I think it was a Sunday night, and he said, hey, Brandon, you ever thought about helping out with children's ministry? And listen, I've got five kids, so I know the, I know the routine. Like, if I'm going to have five kids, like, it's probably... Would, would do me well to go help out with other people's kids because I know that I'm going to have kids that are being helped out as well. I was like, sure, Brother John, like, I, we're in. Whatever you need us to do, we're in. And the conversation kind of ended that way. But I, but I knew that there was something more in his heart that I wasn't quite sure what he was getting at. And so shortly thereafter, I found out that, that Brother John was going to step down from our, from our children's ministry as our director, as our children's ministry pastor. And then it started to click that, that he was gauging my interest on whether or not I'd be willing to take over that role for him. And to be honest, because we had just moved here, I was just getting to know folks, and there's still a lot of folks I, I'm learning. Um, but I didn't really feel like I was in a place that I could take over a ministry to a new church that I was in. And so I declined it at that time. And, and time kind of went on, and we had this search committee, and we were looking for a children's pastor and, and all these things. And then this summer, Miss Anna, Miss Christina, and Jeremy invited me to go to children's camp with them. And we went over to children's camp, and listen, it was just an opportunity for me to take away from my summer coaching duties and go be with the kids. And I thought, sure, my kids are going to be there. Let's go. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I went, and here's the truth of the matter. First night we get there, first day we get there, we get in, and there's children's pastors, and it's room full of kids, and they're doing all these motions, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure this is for me, right? And so I was a little out of my element because I teach high school kids, so I'm used to dealing with juniors and seniors, and listen, whenever, we teach, whenever I teach anatomy and physiology, there isn't a whole lot of hand motions that are going on in that class. You know, we're just in our books, and we're learning. And so for me, I was a little bit out of my element. But three or four days into that journey, the Lord started to soften my heart and started to see the joy that was coming from these kids. And I'm telling you, by the end of the week, I was like, give me all the motions. I'm in. Let, let, me, let me have a part of this. And so the conversation began uh, first with Jeremy and Anna and Christina, like, how can I help more with our children's ministry? And then I talked to Elliot and the personnel committee and started to, to tell them that I think the Lord was laying on my heart that I think that I can be a part of this ministry in a little bit bigger capacity than what, what I was doing. And it was funny, Elliot said, if you're going to do this, I'm not going to let you be the interim. You're going to be our children's pastor. And at first it took me back and I was like, man, I'm okay filling in until, until the Lord puts somebody here that needs to be here. And people just kept pouring into me. And then the coolest part about all of this is that both Jamie and Chelsea and I had the same interest. We wanted to grow and, and, and take what John had done for so many years and continue to grow our children's ministry and God put us together as a team. And so there is no children's pastor and a couple helpers. Listen, our children's ministry is three co-directors, and we are a three-headed monster, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> Maybe not the way you would describe a ministry team in a church, but I'm just telling you, that's the way that it is for us, right? And so we are in this together. We are a team. You know, even Scripture talks about when you have a cord of three strands woven together, man, it's so much stronger than if we're just trying to do things on ourselves. And to me, that's the beautiful picture of what we have in our children's ministry right now is the Lord has ordained us three to help lead these kids and point them to Jesus. 
And here's my favorite part of the story. As much as I love all those other things and how God was putting things together, one night we were getting ready to ordain uh, Tyler and Noah. And I ran into John at that uh, pre-service deacon's meeting. He said, hey, Brandon, I got I to share something with you. And he said, a year and a half ago, whenever I came to you about being our children's minister or being part of our children's ministry, the Lord had already told me that you were going to be the man for the job. He said, I couldn't tell you at that moment. I wasn't sure that that was the right time or place. He said, but the Lord is faithful, and he has made my dream come true. And that is so neat how the Lord works in his timing for our purposes, right? We read in Scripture that he has a plan for all things, that all things work together for his good, for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. And I think that's exactly what we have here this morning. Jamie, Chelsea, and I are called to be your kids' children's minister ministers, and we are super excited about that. As I mentioned to you earlier, it gets a little bit crazy. Even if things are planned out great, listen, I, I don't know if y'all were paying much attention, but like I wasn't planning on teaching you guys in joggers and a t-shirt. Like, I mean, the t-shirt's fine. It's our children's ministry shirts, but like I had on my khakis, and like I changed shoes a couple times this morning. I'm like, what am I going to wear? Like, and then I get up there, and even the best set of waiters sometimes leak. And my, and my khakis <laughs> that I was in, listen, I had water all down my legs, and I'm like, I don't think I could go on stage like that. So, so I stand before you in joggers and some, some slip-on shoes and a T-shirt. And listen, we fist and jump in the Word together, and that's what life is about when you're dealing with kids. Right? So here's where I want you guys to go with me this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 14 if you're not already there. And we're going to explore, and we're going to dive into our first 11 passages. Now, I have an NIV, and what you'll see on the screen is NIV, NIV but just, just to give you a heads up, my wording may be slightly different from yours. But nonetheless, let's read together. This is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way, some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, talking about Jesus, reclining at the table of the home of a man named, named who, sorry, of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman comes in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leaving her, leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with me. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And so what we're going to do, we're going to take those 11 verses, we're going to kind of divide it up into about four or five different sections. So you see on on the screens here, small image of what the feast of Passover would have been like. So you had the Passover feast, and then you had the festival of unleavened bread. And usually what would happen, these would be intertwined, and they would be aligned with one another. But they are both done in remembrance, if we go back to Exodus 12, and and it's done in remembrance of what the Lord had done as he's taken the Israelites out of Egypt, right? So kiddos, help me out. Do you all remember what the Lord used 
to try to tell Pharaoh, it's time for my people to go. What were those things called? There were 10 of them. What were they called? The plagues. Very good. So God used 10 plagues to finally convince Pharaoh, hey, it's time to let my people go. Remember, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go, right? Like that whole deal, right? So, so we, have, we have the, uh, the Israelites that are bound in slavery and captivity, and, and God uses Moses and his brother Aaron to go get them out of captivity, right? And so finally, after Pharaoh's heart had been hardened and hardened and hardened, the 10th plague, do you all remember what the 10th plague was? What was it, Coop? That's right. The firstborn would be killed in all of the land. But yet God had given the Israelites a way out. Do you all remember what he said they had to put over their doorpost? Blood of the blood of the lamb. And so they put blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And as this angel came by and took out the firstborn of all of the land, it passed by. It passed over the families of the Israelites. And so they're, they're celebrating that. They would do this every year. They would have this celebration. And then, so you have the Passover of this, of this death angel. Sorry, guys. The Passover of this death angel that is, that, that is being celebrated. But also, as they leave, do you all remember what they said? This part's not quite as easy to remember. They said, you're going to leave in a hurry, and so we're going to leave the yeast behind. And so, hence, the unleavened bread. So we have Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread, sometimes combined together to call it the fa- uh, Festival of Passover. And so what you see here is that these two festivals were celebrated together in remembrance of Israel's exodus in Exodus chapter 12. They were finally being freed from captivity, and they were being, they were being, they're headed out, right? But yet the Lord used this amazing moment, this Passover moment, to get them out. And so since Passover was remembered, uh, it, it helped us to remember the time when God raised up the great deliverer and freed Israel Here's the deal, what it meant for them today, because this would have been years and years later, right? What it meant for them is that this was going to be a great patriotic and messianic anticipation. So not only were they celebrating what the Lord had already done, they were celebrating what was to come. And so what were they looking for? Well, they were looking for a Messiah, and the Messiah was here. And so things are about to get really interesting because the Messiah is here and God's about to do a big work. Now, did the Israelites exactly know that the Messiah here there were some that had grasped that idea. There were some even of the disciples that understood that Jesus was the Messiah. We're going to see in a minute that Mary understood that he was the Messiah. But I think there were some that were still to come to understand that the Messiah was here and he was ready to do his work. So when you think about a, a feast or a Passover or a, a festival, right, what do you think in terms of people? Like we passed not too long ago, we were coming through Jackson for something, and the state fair was happening in Jackson, right? And there was cars everywhere, right? So that's kind of a, a fair, a festival, right? There was people everywhere. It's estimated that, that the number of people in Jerusalem may have, may have doubled, may have tripled, maybe even been five or six times the number of people, which is interesting for a couple of things. One, there's a lot of people, right? And so you have a lot of people coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be there shortly. Um, but because of that, the, the religious leaders were careful not to ensue a riot, right? Could you imagine if you have at the state fair a riot were to take place? Like we're talking about mass chaos, right? People going crazy. And then the authorities are going to come in and try to take control. Well, who were the authorities in this case? Well, it would have been the Romans. And so if the Romans had an idea that a riot was about to take place, you better believe they were going to come back in and take control. So the religious leaders understood this, and they knew, all right, we're ready to get rid of Jesus, but we got to do it 
slyly. Remember in Scripture when we were reading that, they did it in quietly. They did it in a sly way. And so they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they didn't want to bring on full panic and a riot. And so they're trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, if we go back and mark, do you think this is the first time that these religious leaders had decided, hey, it's time to get rid of Jesus? If you remember back in Mark, even in Mark's account, there's a couple other times. Do you remember when Jesus seized the man with the lame hand on the Sabbath day? And what are the religious, think, religious leaders thinking? They're standing back. They're like, I wonder what Jesus, what's our boy about to do? And Jesus, knowing their hearts, decided to heal this man. Now, healing the man was fine. It was neat that he had healed him. But when did he heal him? He chose to heal him on the Sabbath. Now, that's crazy to me, right? With, that they were so worried about their laws and their rules and their regulations that they, were, they had chose not to heal on the Sabbath. In fact, they were so distraught with Jesus that in that moment that they decided that it's time for this fellow to go because he healed on the Sabbath. Now, you and I may read that and think, that's just crazy. But when we get to then, I think it's going to make a little bit more sense that you and I maybe are like that a bit too. But just think about that. You got a man that with, a, with a lame hand and Jesus chooses to heal him. Well, then another time that Jesus chooses to heal uh, on, uh, on a time that, that gets them upset is when, let's see, uh, I had it written down. Oh, how about Mark 11? Mark 11 is when, they're, when you have the money cha- changers in the temple. Remember when Jesus comes into the temple, he's like, this isn't how my father's house is going to be. And so what he does is he turns over the tables and he throws out the money changers. That didn't sit too well with the religious leaders either, right? And so this was not the first time that they had thought in their minds and tried to come up with a plan to kill Jesus. And so here's a neat picture of some of those religious leaders in their, in their outfits, and they look beautiful. And on the outside, they had this appearance of, of being right with the Lord, but on the inside, their hearts were hardening, and they were missing the mark. And they were scheming together to try to come up with this plan to take Jesus down. So if we look in verses 2 and 3, we see that, um, once again, this wasn't the first time that they had thought to kill Jesus. But here's what I believe is true about this. Because they were more afraid of the riot than they were of God, they were more worried about man than they were God. Like, in my mind, I can't wrap my head around that, that they were willing to kill the Son of God, but yet they were afraid of a riot. That just doesn't make sense. But yet, that's where they were because they were so caught up in their own selfishness. They were so caught up in their own greed. They were so caught up in their own ways that they wanted to do, do it their way. That they wanted to do it their way and they weren't worried about what God was doing. Yet God had sent the Messiah and he was standing right in front of them and they were missing the Messiah because they were so caught up in their own ways. And I think sometimes we can get to that point that we get so caught up in our own activities, whether they're good or bad, that I can forget what God is doing. Whenever I told you about going and spending a week with the kiddos this summer, our family stays busy with five kiddos, and it's just life's busy for everybody. I don't, I don't want to try to make it that my life's any busier than you guys. But, but I, I said in my mind that I don't have time to go be with these kiddos every Sunday and, and give up of my time and, and, and worship with them and because I was so worried about my own things, right? But spending a week with them, God reminded me of the things that I was missing out on because I was choosing to do things my way. And, man, that was a tough pill to swallow. Got, got away from life and got away from the business and, and got to spend a week with them and got to see how their joy was overflowing. And, and even in the silly motions and all the songs that come with that, man, their joy, their light was shining bright. And you know what I was doing with my light? I was hiding it behind a bushel. You remember our song, right? I'm going to let my light shine. And I'm not going to hide that light. 
yet that's what I was doing. I may not have looked like the Pharisees with my robes and, and all that they had going on. I didn't have these phylacteries with these scriptures tied around my head. But in my own way, I looked the part on the outside, but my heart was hardened because I didn't think I had time for these kiddos. And the Lord began to work on me. He said, you got time, and I promise it's worth it. It's going to be a little crazy at times, but I promise it's worth it. And so the Lord began to work on me in that way. So let's do this. Let's jump to, to verses, verse 3. And let's talk about this anointing that's going to take place with Jesus. So there's, there's the same concept, same part of Scripture that takes place in John chapter 12. And John gives us a little bit, just a slight bit more insight into this than what Mark does. And there's some reason behind that that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. But nonetheless, in verse 3, let's just reread it. It says in verse 3, while Jesus was in Bethany, this is just a little way outside of Jerusalem, he was, re- was reclining at the table in the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, a couple interesting things there. Whenever I think of reclining, like I'm going to get in the reclining chair, kicking my feet up, sitting back, watching the game, right? Like that's what I think about reclining. It wasn't that long ago, Katie and I were in a Bible study of some sort, probably Sunday morning. She was reading in her Bible with the footnotes. It said that when, when the disciples would have been reclining, they actually had their feet back behind them, and they had kind of their elbows or their arms propped up on something. Now, to me, that does not feel or sound uh, uh, comfortable, but I just thought that was an interesting thing. So this woman comes in, and I'm not about to get on the stage and show this to you, but like you can imagine, they got their, their legs kicked back, right, back behind them, and they're, they're up on their arms, and they're just, they're just hanging out apparently, right? And so, so they're, they're doing their thing, and this woman, Mark just says this woman, comes in with this expensive bottle or jar of perfume. Now, I don't know much about their perfume, but the disciples give us a little insight to this perfume. So Mark tells us that, that it's uh, pure nard, which means that it would have been super expensive. Uh, some commentaries would tell you that it likely was a, was a family heirloom as well, something that because it was so expensive would have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And this woman, just this woman, comes in prepared beforehand to anoint Jesus. Now, if you flip over to John chapter 12, which you don't have to, but if you want to read it in John chapter 12, John gives us a little bit more insight. He says that this is actually Mary, the mother of, not the mother, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And so if you remember much about Lazarus and Martha and Mary, you would have known that Jesus was super tight with these folks, right? Like best friend type deal. You remember when Lazarus dies and Mary, um, Mary and Martha are like, Jesus, why didn't you come? And Jesus is weeping, then he heals him, brings him back back from the dead, like all that that took place. Like, that's the same Lazarus, and it would be Mary and Martha. And do y'all remember the difference in Mary and Martha? Martha was the what? Anybody remember? Martha was kind of the, she was the worker, right? Like, that's kind of how I find myself all the time. I, I very rarely stop, but she was the worker. She was getting food ready, and she was getting the house ready, and Mary the, was the one that sort of, to, to, Mar, to Martha's uh, disappointment, I think, was the one that was willing to sit at the feet of Jesus. But I think here you see that that's a beautiful thing, that, he, that she chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus. So she comes in with this perfume. Now, what about Simon the leper? We don't know a ton about Simon, um, but it is possible that maybe this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' father. Nonetheless, it was a leper. And so when somebody has leprosy, it's a skin disease. And in their time, like sometimes we have skin diseases that can be pretty rough today. But with our medical technology, like usually we can, we can get, a, get a grasp on those things. But in their time, it was, they, were, they were disbanded from the community, right? So it was, it was seen as a plague. It was seen as something that, that, that they didn't want to be a part of. 
And so you have Simon the leper, who we think probably Jesus healed, and Jesus is spending time in his home with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and their family, right? And so Mary comes in with this beautiful, this expensive perfume, and she breaks the neck on it, and she pours it on Jesus' head. Now, if you read it in John, y'all remember where she pours the perfume in John's account? She pours it on his feet. And I've always thought, that don't make sense. Why would John say that it was poured on, on his feet, and, and Mark says that it was poured on, her, on his head? And this is a little bit different than the sinful woman that comes. You remember that is crying and wipes her tears on Jesus' feet? This is a different story. But in Mark and John's account, it's different. So here's what most people believe. There would have been so much perfume because it's this full jar that he poured it on his head and it went all down his body and even to his feet. And if you know much about Jewish culture, you would know that this could be a symbol of Mary preparing Jesus for burial. Because if you remember back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus would say that it is about time for me to be handed over and to be crucified. And so the disciples, in fact, Peter, do y'all remember in Mark chapter 8 what Peter says? I love Peter to death. Peter, Peter's my buddy, right? I think me and Peter would have got along well. Peter goes to Jesus, and he takes him aside after Jesus has predicted this. And, and Peter's like, hey, buddy, um, I, I know you got this thing with God. I'm par- paraphrasing, like this isn't how exactly how scripture reads. But he said, I know you got the, like this special insight with God, but like I hate to tell you, but like this isn't how things are going to go down. Me and your boys, we got your back. Ain't nobody coming after you, Right? And do y'all remember what Jesus said? He said, get behind me, Satan, right? In that moment, I think Peter was so, so had an idea in his head that how he wanted things to play out, that he was missing what God was about to do, right? And Jesus knew that this had to take place. And he's like, Peter, step aside, buddy. You do your deal. I'll do mine. Y'all know the Snickers commercial where they say, stay in your lane, right? Like, that's what I think about. Like, Peter, stay in your lane, buddy. You know, that's what Jesus is telling. He says, I got this under control. I got this, right? And so, so we get to this point of where uh, Mary is, is anointing Jesus with this, with this perfume in preparation because she believed Jesus' words that he would soon have to die for our sins. And so she's preparing this. Also, though, here's another idea, right? What about the anointing of oil on the head, which I like in, in Mark's account, it could have been as a representation of a king being anointed as well. And so we see both the, the, the representation of Jesus as the Messiah, but also a Messiah who must go to the grave for us, right? So a little bit of foreshadowing that's taken place. But here's what's interesting about this. We see that, that Mary does this, but we also see that the disciples don't exactly take too well to this. If we read over in John, it tells us that, that Judas particularly was indignant with this, with this activity, right? And so he was upset. Now, do y'all remember what Judas's job was? He was one of the disciples, and he is the one that ends up betraying Jesus. But do y'all remember what his job was? Boys, do y'all remember what Judas's job was? Anybody? He was the treasurer, right? So he was in, in charge of the money. And so he, he's sitting and reclining at the table with the other disciples, and he sees this woman, Mary, come in and break this jar and pour this perfume, this expensive perfume on Jesus. And he says, do you know what we could have done with that money? Now, John tells us that it wasn't so much because he really cared about the poor. It's because he was used to taking some money from himself out of the, out of the treasury. And so Judas had this very greedy nature about it. But if you read carefully, what do you notice about the disciples? It actually says that all of the disciples were a bit upset with Mary, right? They became indignant with her. They called it a waste. 
And once again, I don't quite understand this. I think that maybe they didn't understand the ramifications. They didn't understand that, that uh, Jesus was being anointed as the Messiah and the one that was going to die uh, shortly thereafter. I think they still have in their mind, like Peter, like, this ain't going to happen to my boy. I got his back. We're going in this together. We're going, we're going down fighting, right? But, and they don't see it that way. And so they, too, become indignant with Mary, and they say, man, this was such a waste. We could have used this to take care of the poor, but yet Jesus saw it as good. Jesus saw it as a good work. So with their simple love and devotion to Jesus, Mary understood what the disciples did not, that Jesus was about to die, and she intended this gift as a preparation for his burial. And so she knew because she had heard what Jesus was going to say in his prophecies, and she understood what he was getting at, that she decided that this is the way that I can show love and devotion. So remember Martha, she's in the kitchen and taking care of the house, but yet Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and loved him extravagantly and served him in that way. And I wonder, I wonder how many times we get so busy with life that I choose to not sit at the feet of Jesus. Remember, it's easy for us to look at Scripture and be upset with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the elders and think, man, how are you guys missing the mark? Jesus is right there in front of you. I think today, like if Jesus could be here on this, on this stage today, like, man, how I would come sit at the altar and I would just sit at his feet and I would want to learn from him. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is here today. Jesus is always with us. In fact, he would tell his disciples, he said, listen, it's been good being here with you, but I've got to go prepare a place for you. And one day I'm coming back and we're all going to go party together. He didn't really say it that way, but that's what I get from the scripture. He said, I'm going to go prepare heaven for you. And one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you to a place where there's no more tears and there's no more hurt or no more crying. And it's going to be a place that we celebrate and we enjoy God's presence forever. That's what he said to his disciples. But yet they wanted him to be there. And I think the same thing. What if Jesus was here with us? Could I look at Jesus in the eye and say, I want to sit at your feet and I want to learn? But yet today, I get so caught up in the things that I think I need to do, the things that I want to do. Chasing after my kiddos and taking on the ball is great. But if I don't do that in a way that points them to Jesus, I think I'm missing the mark. And unfortunately, they're missing the mark too. And so just think about what Mary did and how the disciples didn't quite understand that. Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus and pour this beautiful perfume on him. And it takes up the aroma of the room. And and just this beautiful moment, yet the disciples missed the mark. Let's not be the ones who miss the mark. So if we go on just a little bit further, after Mary's anointing, we get to uh, verse 9. Jesus not only sees this as a good work, but he says, you guys are going to remember this till the end of time. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, I love that. Jesus knew what he must do, but he also knew that the gospel, that his message that the message of God was going to be preached throughout the world. He had confidence and he had assurance that what he needed to do was going to be done and there was a purpose for it. And he says, when this gospel, not if, but when this gospel is preached throughout the world, her story, Mary's story, is going to be remembered because of what she had done. So then you kind of flip the page and we go back to Judas. What Mary had done was, was so, so beautiful. Even though the disciples kind of missed it, I think they eventually come around. But then there's one. There's Judas. Judas Iscariot, right? The treasurer, the one who was worried about the money for, for greedy purposes. And you have Judas. And he goes to the religious leaders. And he's like, all right, it's time. Now, here's the thing about Judas that always gets me. Was Judas a good dude or not? And I don't have the answer for that. I think there's plenty of commentators that would kind of shine a decent light on, Jude, on Judas. But it's very easy to see him in a poor light as well. 
because he was one of the disciples. Here's my question. How can you be in and with Jesus and miss the entirety of his message? I don't get that. But here's what I do believe. I think that Judas was willing and God ordained somehow, some way for Judas to be a part of his plan. Now, was that because Judas was greedy and wanted Jesus to die? I don't know. Some believe that Judas did this because he was ready for Jesus to make his move, and it was time to make his move, and he's just kind of spurring on the movement that Jesus had come for, right? Because most believed that the Messiah would come in big form and fashion. They were expecting Jesus to come in riding on a horse and take over the Romans and, and put the Jews back in their rightful place. But yet, that's not how Jesus came. He said, I came to serve and not to be served. And so I think partly because Judas was greedy, I think partly because he wanted to see Jesus make his move, that Judas chose to betray him. And he went to the chief priests and the elders and said, all right, it's time. We read once again in John, he goes and he says, what are you willing to pay me to betray him? Man, that is tough. That one of his own disciples would go to the chief priests and elders and they would, he would say, and what could you give me if I choose to betray them? Many speculate the motive of Judas. Perhaps his feelings were hurt when Jesus rebuked him after Mary poured the ointment over Jesus' feet and head. Perhaps it was plain greed. Some speculate that Judas wanted to force Jesus into an open display of messianic glory. But nonetheless, Judas was a member of his hand-picked disciples. He was a part of the mission trips and present at Jesus' teaching, his miracle sessions, and even the Last Supper. But yet we see that Judas on his own will and his own accord, went to the religious leaders, and he chose to betray Jesus. And what's to come is the greatest story to ever be told. Jesus has already been doing his thing, part of his, part of his missionary journey, and, and doing these miracles and sharing the love of God and talking about repentance. But yet what was to come is the greatest story to ever be told. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but because you guys have been a part of this church, you know that Brother Jeff preaches on the full gospel. And so the gospel would say that not only is Jesus betrayed, and he's taken into captivity, and he's taken in, and he has to go before Pilate, and, he, and, and eventually he is led to the cross, his death on a cross. But once again, that's not the end of the story. That's not the full gospel. Jesus would come and teach repentance, and he would teach the love of God, and he knew what needed to be done, and so he was willing to go to the cross for me and you, but that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins and his blood makes us white as snow because when he died on that cross, he took on our sins. And when he came down off of that cross, he was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That Jesus not only died on the cross for us, but yet he rose again three days later and he conquered death. And he took our sins to the grave and our sins are wiped away as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are made white as snow when we believe in Jesus, and that is the beauty of the gospel that Jesus said would be shared throughout the world. And a part of his story and a part of his gospel would be that story when Mary comes and anoints him as the Messiah and for burial because he knew that that would be a part of his story, and that story hinges on the fact that Jesus went to the cross for me and for you. And that is the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, that one day he would come back and he's going to gather all of his people, and we're going to go to heaven, and we're going to celebrate in the presence of God for eternity. But do you know what the sad part of that story is? The gospel is beautiful, and it's for everybody. The sad part of that story is sometimes we miss the mark. 
Sometimes the Pharisees were so religious and had it, had it in their head that they were doing things the right way that they missed the Messiah that was standing in front of them. And you, my friends, I don't want that to be you. I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be my kiddos. I don't want it to be a, a part of our children's ministry. My favorite part of this ministry is pointing people to Jesus and seeing people like Elizabeth make a decision to trust and follow Jesus and get a, be a part of bab, uh, believer's baptism and shine their light for Jesus. That is the gospel. Even though maybe we miss the mark from time to time, Jesus is constantly calling us home. He is constantly seeking after us. And when he gets a hold of our life and the Holy Spirit comes to be a, it comes to be a part of our lives, there's very little that can stop us. Then I think Peter is right. We are going to fight this fight to the end together. And when Jesus is for us, who can be against us? That. It's the gospel, my friends. And that is what's exciting about this word. This word that's alive and active and sharper than any two, two-edged sword. That is why the story is worth sharing. That is why I stand before you this morning, not because I can study and tell you a little bit about Passover and this perfume that Mary had, but because I get to share the gospel with you. And that story is a part of the gospel that, that Jesus would come and die for me and you so that one day we could spend eternity with him in heaven. That, my friends, is the gospel. And so here's how we're going to finish up our service today. I want to invite you guys uh, to, to be a part of our invitation. Our kiddos know what this looks like. We do this every week just like you guys do. And so we're going to have some music playing. We'll pull the lights down. This altar is open. A couple of my deacon buddies and my friends and my brothers in Christ are going to come forward, and they're going to help me pray with you guys and for you guys. So if the Lord is putting something on your heart that you would like for us to pray for, come be a part of that. If the Lord is calling to you to something great, something greater than the life that you're living, and really there is only one thing greater, is to follow Him. If the Lord is calling you to that point in your life, then come and let's talk about it. I'd love to share more about the gospel with you. This is just a quick snippet of what the gospel is all about. But when Jesus gets a hold of your life, my friends, your life will change forever. And it's a, and it's a, it's a story that, that, that you would never want to look back on and look back in the past. Christ says that we're striving towards what is ahead, and we're running that race of endurance so that one day we can be with him in heaven. So as we get ready for invitation, I want to pray, and the guys will bring the lights down, and we'll play a little bit of music, and we're going to just have a time where you guys can come pray, whatever it may be. Don't feel like you've got to come to me, to our, to our deacon brothers. You, the altar is yours. Y'all come pray as you see fit. So let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to stand on your stage and share a bit about your word. The fact that you used so long ago a story like the Passover to save the firstborn of the Israelites and how the Jews were still celebrating that as Jesus would come into town and be ready to take his place as the Messiah. And Lord, thankful that Jesus chose to go to the cross, that even though that would have been a hard task to take on, that physically it was tough, that mentally it was tough, that spiritually it was tough, he still chose to go to the cross for us to bear his body for our sins. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you give us a story like that that's a story of redemption and sacrifice and ultimate love so that you and I can be a part of his story. Now, we are called co-heirs, that we are a holy priesthood that are now a part of his inheritance. We are co-inheritors with Jesus, co-heirs with Jesus because of what Jesus did on that cross. And Lord, I pray that in all that we do, that we are shining the light of the gospel. 
whether it be in words or actions or thoughts, Lord, I pray that we are shining your light in all that we do. And so, Lord, as we prepare for invitation this morning, I pray that those who have burdens, the Lord, that they come and lay them at the foot of the cross this morning, that they come to the altar, that they are willing to lay those burdens down and let you take over our lives.